Hello everyone, what is up? Welcome back to another episode of Killer Instinct. If you're new here, hi, my name is Savannah and I'm your host of Killer Instinct. Before we get started, make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button, that way you never miss an episode. We post weekly on the podcast every Wednesday as well as on YouTube and you are not going to want to miss it. If you are watching me on YouTube right now, you might notice that something is a little different. We switched up the backdrop. I was trying to give it a little bit more moodier vibes, a little bit cozier vibes, and I am starting to warm up to it a little bit. It's going to take some adjusting. It's definitely different. If you're listening, usually we have a white wall with these candles behind me, but we switched it up and did a black backdrop instead. So just gives it a little bit more of a moody feel but let me know what you think about it but besides that as you can tell by the title of today's episode today we are talking about a horrific horrific man and a terrifying case of not just one but two people and this is a case that when I heard it I knew immediately it was something that I wanted to share because this case is still unsolved to a specific degree and you'll understand what I mean by that as we jump into it. So with that all being said, let's jump right on into it today. So we're going to work backwards in this case, which is unusual, but I feel like it's the best way to make sense of all of this. So because of that, we are going to start all the way back in November of 1984. In November of 1984 is when a woman named Janice Hooker went to police to turn her husband in for the kidnapped, rape, and torture of a girl named Colleen Stan. Janice Hooker met her husband Cameron in 1973 when she was 16 years old and he was 20 years old. They married two years after meeting when Cameron worked as a lumber mill worker at Diamond International Lumber Mill. Part of the reason that Janice and Cameron married so young was because she wanted to escape her own abusive household. Janice claimed that she grew up with a lot of violence, a lot of abuse, and she thought that by marrying Cameron, she would be able to escape that life. However, ultimately, Janice learned pretty quickly into her marriage with Cameron that he had an obsession with sadism and torture. It was quickly into their marriage that Janice became psychologically manipulated by Cameron. It's even up for debate whether or not that started at the beginning of them dating due to their age gap and due to the control that Cameron had over Janice. And Janice's dream all of her life was to become a mother. She wanted kids of her own. She wanted to raise a family. That was her dream. And Cameron knew that. And Cameron was such a dominant in this relationship. He had so much control psychologically over Janice that he ended up telling her that the only way he would ever agree to have a child with her is if she allowed him to kidnap a girl to keep as his sex slave. 
He explained to Janice that he wanted to kidnap someone who would not be able to resist him, who could not be able to say no to him, and someone he could live out his fantasies on. And because Janice was so eager to have a child and to have a family of her own, along with being mentally warped by Cameron, she ultimately agreed to go along with Cameron's plan. And again, partially that was because she wanted to be a mother, but part of that was out of fear. She feared what would happen if she said no to Cameron. And it was after this conversation that Cameron and Janice began their hunt, which ultimately led them to Colleen Stan. Colleen Stan was born on December 31st of 1956. Colleen was 20 years old on May 19th of 1977 when she was hitchhiking from her home in Eugene, Oregon to go to Northern California for one of her friend's birthday parties. Now, you do have to remember the time frame here. We're in the 1970s, and in the 1970s, hitchhiking was pretty common, and Colleen thought that this would be the most effective way to get from her home in Eugene to where she needed to go in Northern California. And Colleen was also very cautious. She tried to be cautious about who she would get into cars with. In fact, before accepting her final ride, she actually turned down two other cars who offered her rides because she didn't get a good feeling about it. Colleen hitchhiked from Eugene, Oregon, all the way to Red Bluff, California, which is where she tried to find her next ride. And like I mentioned, she turned down two offers before a blue van pulled up beside her. And inside this blue van was Cameron, Janice, and at this point, their infant child. When Colleen saw Cameron and Janice at first, her first assumption was that this had to be a safe ride. Her guard was immediately let down because this didn't seem like your typical sketchy, stereotypical ride. This was a family who was offering her a ride to where she needed to go, and she wasn't going to turn down that offer. So Colleen got into the car. After driving about 20 miles, Cameron pulled over to a gas station because Colleen had requested to be let out to go to the bathroom. Colleen said that when she was in the bathroom, she had a gut-sinking feeling to not get back in the car. However, ultimately, she decided to dismiss that feeling, saying that she was just being paranoid and that she had nothing to worry about. However, when Colleen got back into the car is when Cameron pulled out a knife and stuck it to her throat before placing a wooden head box over her head. Now, for those who don't know exactly what a head box is, because I certainly didn't either, a head box is a wooden box that has locks on it that is placed over someone's head that prevents light, sound, or fresh air from entering or exiting. Now, this specific head box is actually one that Cameron made himself. It was a homemade head box that he designed specifically to be soundproof because he knew the likelihood that his victims were going to be screaming was high. So he created this tactic to make sure that he had a device that would subdue the screams from neighbors or bystanders who could potentially hear his victims' cries for help. 
And after placing the head box over Colleen's head, that is when Cameron, Janice, and their baby drove all the way back to the Hooker household, which was located on Oak Street in Red Bluff, California. Immediately upon arriving at Cameron's house, Colleen was blindfolded, she was gagged, she was handcuffed. And one of the first things that Cameron told Colleen, which was a scare tactic, was that he was a part of an organization that he called The Company. And Cameron told Colleen that if she ever tried to escape or ever was successful in escaping, that the company would go to her, they would go to her family, and they would kill all of them. Now, the company never existed. This was not something that Cameron was actually involved in or a part of. However, again, it was a scare tactic to try and manipulate Colleen. And Cameron kept up with this story. In fact, at one point during Colleen's captivity, Janice had to get knee surgery. However, Colleen didn't know about the knee surgery. All she saw was that Janice left the house one day and came back in a knee brace. And that is when Cameron told her that Janice had attempted to escape, that she was a slave for him at one point, and she had tried to escape and the company had attacked her. So again, that just goes to show the lengths that Cameron was going to keep up with this story that he had created to manipulate and scare Colleen. On the first day of her captivity, Cameron hung Colleen by her arms from the basement rafters after removing all of her clothing. Cameron and Janice pretty much immediately started referring to Colleen as Kay and forced her to refer to them as Master and Ma'am. Now, the first night of her captivity, Colleen was brought down to the basement of the Hooker home and chained up into a crate, and each day after that, she was tortured. Cameron would tie her wrists to the ceiling as he whipped, burned, beat, and electrocuted her. And while this was a physically torturing tactic, it was also a psychological tactic to get Colleen to submit to Cameron. Colleen ultimately tried to bypass the pain as much as she could because she realized that the more that she would express that she was in pain, the stronger the torture would be. Cameron was getting off on the fact that Colleen was in so much pain, so if she was not expressing that pain, he would ultimately get bored and leave her alone. Now, in the beginning of Colleen's captivity, Cameron himself refrained from having sex with Colleen. However, he would torture her instead and then force her to watch as Cameron and Janice had sex. He would also then rape Colleen using different foreign objects. And there was actually a reason as to why Cameron refused to rape Colleen in the very beginning, which was because Cameron and Janice had made a pact together before they went ahead and kidnapped Colleen. And that pact was that Cameron would never cross the line of raping Colleen himself. Cameron expressed to Janice that he did not want to be disloyal to his wife in that way, and so he was going to refrain from that, and that was the one boundary that Janice and Cameron had when it came to all of this. And I know my listeners pretty well, and I know you guys are probably sitting there thinking, what like how does that even correlate or make sense, or how does the math the math isn't mathing? How does that work? And you're right, it doesn't. And it just goes to show how twisted of a mindset that Cameron and Janice had together. 
Now, Cameron kept Colleen in that basement of their home for five whole months. And it was after the five months that Cameron ultimately decided to let Colleen out of the basement. When Colleen came out from the basement, she discovered what her new home was going to be, which was a wooden box that was just barely big enough for her to lie down in. And this box was kept under Cameron and Janice's bed. And this is where Colleen was locked up for 23 out of the 24 hours in a day. Colleen was in this box for months until January of 1978 when Cameron forced Colleen to sign a contract stating that she would sign over her life to be Cameron's sex slave. And once Colleen signed this contract, it was a turning point in the twisted, messed up, not even relationship, for a lack of a better word, between Colleen, Cameron, and Janice. Because once this contract was signed, in Cameron's mind, he took this contract very literally. And for him, this contract meant that Colleen was officially not going anywhere. He didn't have to worry about her trying to escape. He didn't have to worry about her trying to get away from him because now she had signed this contract. And so because of that, this is when Colleen slowly started to regain little bits of freedom. And this freedom began by just being let out of this box for more than an hour a day. The freedom then rolled over to Colleen being able to be around Cameron, Janice, and the kids in family settings. These kids were under the impression that Colleen was their babysitter. And there were times when Janice and Cameron would leave Colleen with the children. And these kids had no idea that their babysitter was actually sleeping in a wooden box underneath their parents' bed every night. At this point, Janice and Cameron had two children, and the second child was actually born on the mattress in the bed while Colleen was trapped in the wooden box underneath. But regardless of the new freedoms that she was gaining, Colleen never attempted to escape or run away due to how psychologically tortured and manipulated that she had been at this point. And she was also still living in fear of this organization called The Company that Cameron had threatened her with. And so because she was not trying to escape, she was granted even more freedoms. And after two and a half years of being missing, Cameron actually let Colleen call her family while he observed. Now for Colleen's family, they did file a missing persons report for her. However, they also knew that Colleen was a free spirit. She was very independent. She was not the type of person that checked in with them every day, so it wasn't completely out of the blue for them to not hear from her. However, for two and a half years that she had been gone at that point, they did file a missing persons report. However, after speaking to Colleen on the phone, the family got the impression that Colleen had joined a cult. That was how different she had sounded to them when speaking to them. That was how affected she had now been, and her family was under the assumption that she had just joined a cult and had not reached out to them since. And actually, in 1981, Cameron actually went with Colleen to her family's house. So Colleen did get to visit her family in person in 1981, and Cameron went with her and acted as her boyfriend. They all took pictures together. They all did the family visit together. 
all while Colleen's family was not knowing that they were around their daughter and her captor, torturer, and abuser. And again, Colleen's family was very worried to overstep in this situation because they were worried that if they did overstep, if they did try to pry into Colleen's life, that she was going to push them away again. So they really didn't press much on what was new in her life, what was going on. It was all very surface level. Now in 1983, Colleen was granted even more freedom when Cameron allowed her to get a part-time job working as a maid at a nearby hotel. So it is very interesting when you look at all of these events that are slowly transpiring. And personally, I think it goes to show how tight of a hold Cameron had on Colleen at that point, how much he had tortured her, how much he had manipulated her into thinking that she needed to be with him forever. We're talking about someone who had been electrocuted, someone who had been drowned in bathtubs until they couldn't breathe, someone who had been burned. And due to all of that, Colleen was not going to risk trying to escape or trying to run away. But again, now we're in 1983, so it has been years at this point that Colleen has been held captive. It has been seven years. And at this point in her captivity is where things take a turn, because at this point is when Cameron goes against the pact he had made with Janice. And again, that pact was to not rape Colleen himself because he didn't want to be disloyal to his wife. Again, doesn't make sense, but just bear with me. And so at this point is when Cameron begins raping Colleen, but not just that. It was also at this time where Cameron went to Janice and told Janice that he wanted to marry Colleen, which didn't mean for him that he didn't want to be with Janice too. He just wanted Colleen as a second wife. And at this point, Janice had snapped. Imagine an app designed to make you use it less. Seems a little counterproductive, right? Well, Apartments.com's instant alert feature works exactly that way. Instead of scanning rental listings a million times a day, simply set and forget your search to whatever you're looking for in a place and let Apartments.com do the rest. From pet-friendly apartments to balconies to in-unit ACs, Apartments.com's powerful search tools let you know when the perfect combination of features you're seeking is listed. So you don't have to power through rental descriptions one by one. With more rental listings than anywhere else, Apartments.com's instant alerts mean that you can spend less time looking for the perfect place and more time on just doing you. Apartments.com, the place to find a place. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. 
Janice had been spiraling over the years that this had happened in many different ways, and she specifically began spiraling even more once Cameron broke his pact with her. And she was very much aware of it. So when that happened, she started to snowball and she ultimately made the decision that she was going to leave Cameron and Janice actually went to Colleen herself and told Colleen that she was going to leave Cameron and when Colleen heard this Colleen was extremely terrified for her own life she had begged Janice not to leave and to not leave without her because she was terrified as to what would have happened if she was left alone with Cameron she was worried that if she was left alone with Cameron, it would send her over the edge and she would ultimately die. And this is when Janice decided that she was going to take Colleen with her. So she was going to take her kids and she was going to take Colleen and the four of them were going to escape from Cameron. And so ultimately they ended up waiting until the next morning when Cameron went off to work to pack up their belongings and head over to Janice's parents' house. Now they did stay there for a while trying to figure out their next steps before ultimately Colleen was reunited with her family. And this time they were able to figure out what was actually happening to their daughter all those past seven years that they had no idea. Now, from the very beginning, after Janice and Colleen made their escape from Cameron, Janice made Colleen promise her that she was not going to go to the authorities right away because Janice was worried that if Colleen went to the police, then she, Janice, would also be arrested. She wanted time to get situated with her and her kids and told Colleen that she would go to the police and that Colleen did not need to. Now, ultimately, Janice did keep her end of the deal because three months after their escape in November of 1984, Janice finally worked up the courage to go to the authorities and she told them everything in regards to Colleen's kidnapping. She told them that Cameron had kidnapped, tortured, and raped Colleen for seven years, but that wasn't all. Janice also told police that Colleen was not the first or only girl that Cameron had kidnapped. Janice told police that a year prior to Colleen's abduction, Cameron had kidnapped another girl named Marliz. Marie Elizabeth Spanicky was born on June 20th, 1956 to her parents, Dorothy and Ernest. She was born and raised in Cleveland, Ohio, and was one of seven children. Growing up, Marie started going by the nickname Marliz, which is what everyone referred to her as, so that is what we will be referring to her as today. Marliz grew up being outgoing and friendly, and from a young age, Marliz had big dreams of leaving the small town and moving to Los Angeles to fulfill her dreams of becoming an actress. Now, Marliz was a very beautiful girl. She had long, brown, curly hair and bright blue eyes. When Marliz was 19 years old, she ended up meeting a man named John Baruth in 1975, and the two really hit it off. After Marliz had expressed her dreams of moving to LA and becoming an actress, John and her wasted no time trying to make those dreams a reality before they saved up all of their money, packed up, and moved to California. 
Now, when Marliz and John moved, they moved into an apartment complex in Chico, California. Marliz got jobs here and there working as a part-time model and was also working at a camera shop. Now, according to Marliz's sister, when Marliz got out to California, it quickly became a very big reality check for her. Because if you are unaware, Chico, California is about a seven and a half hour drive north from Los Angeles. So Marliz is going into this experience thinking she's moving somewhere in the big city with the bright lights and the movie stars and Hollywood and all of that. And instead, she's moving to Chico. Not that there's anything wrong with Chico, but it's just not what Marliz had in mind. She was expecting the luxurious life, the glitz and the glamour, and that was not what Chico was giving her. Marliz expressed all of this to the multiple letters she wrote back to her sister, and she also explained that her and John were also going through some troubles as well, and she began feeling lonely. She moved out to California not really knowing anyone other than her boyfriend, and it was a hard adjustment to get into. And so because of that, Marliz ultimately made the decision that this was not right for her. And she told her sister that she would be moving back home to Cleveland in April of that same year. However, that never happened. On January 31st of 1976, John and Marliz went to a flea market together, and while they were there, the two of them got into an argument. The argument ultimately ended after Marliz stormed off and told John that she would be walking home, but unfortunately, she was never seen again. Now, neighbors of a suburban area recalled Marliz walking on Mangrove Avenue at around 4 p.m. that day. However, no one had seen or heard from her after that. Now, it ended up taking John two full days to file a missing persons report because in his mind, he claimed that he thought that Marliz just needed some time to cool off. She just needed a little breather and she would ultimately come home. However, when she didn't arrive back after two days, he started to worry that something was wrong. After John had contacted authorities, they went to their shared apartment, and that is where John showed police that everything of Marliz's was still at the apartment. Her clothes, her toothbrush, all of her belongings that she would normally take with her if she was leaving were still there. Now, it's probably no surprise to you when I tell you that police assumed that John was responsible. He was the boyfriend, he was the last known person to see her, and police saw him as a very possible person of interest. However, after doing multiple interviews with John, he was extremely cooperative with the police, and he also passed a polygraph test that asked questions about Marlis's whereabouts, what happened to her, he passed it with flying colors. So ultimately, police knew that they had to start looking at different leads. And police and Marliz's family were trying to do every possible thing they could to get Marliz's name out there. They were putting up flyers. They were contacting everyone they could to try and spread the word. They were even hiring witch doctors at one point to try and see if anyone could come up with anything because it felt like Marliz had simply disappeared without a trace. 
And that was the consensus because this case had ultimately gone cold until Janice had confessed to police that Cameron had kidnapped and murdered her. And Janice described all of the torture that Cameron inflicted on Marliz. Janice claimed that Cameron placed Marliz in that same wooden head box. That way, no one would hear her screaming. And Marliz's torture was brutal. Marliz was screaming throughout her entire abduction. And in order to be quiet, Cameron actually attempted to cut out her vocal cords. He attempted to do this while Marliz was partially sedated, and he realized very quickly in this attempt that he did not know what he was doing, and he realized this after Marliz began bleeding everywhere all over the bathroom floor. Because Cameron realized that he didn't know what he was doing, he ultimately stopped and was unsuccessful in cutting her vocal cords. However, he wasted no time getting back to torturing her. Similarly to Colleen, he hung Marliz from the basement rafters while blindfolding her and gagging her. And ultimately, according to Janice, Cameron shot Marliz twice with a BB gun before strangling her to death. Afterwards, Janice claimed that her and Cameron put Marliz's body into the trunk of his car and drove 30 miles north of Red Bluff, California and headed towards a state park called Lassen Park, where Janice said they turned onto a dirt road and that is when Cameron got out of the car and began digging a shallow grave where he placed Marliz's body. Afterwards, she claimed that Cameron took all of Marliz's clothing and burned them. Now, the whole abduction and murder from start to finish took about 10 to 12 hours. And when police first spoke to Colleen, one of the first things they asked her after she had recounted her own torture from Cameron, they asked her about Marliz. They asked if she knew anything about Marliz. And that is when Colleen told police that she remembered seeing a picture that Cameron had kept of a girl that had the same features and characteristics of Marliz. And police knew very quickly after Colleen had described the features of the girl in the picture that the girl in the picture was in fact Marliz. Now due to Janice's confession and the fact that she agreed to testify against Cameron, she was actually granted full immunity, which I'm very interested to see what you guys have to say about that. However, on December 6th of 1984, Cameron Hooker was arrested and charged with kidnapping, false imprisonment, and several different sexual offenses. Cameron pled not guilty and the defense tried to argue that Colleen stayed with Cameron on her own accord. They argued that due to the freedoms that Cameron gave Colleen, that she was able to leave at any time. Cameron did testify on his own behalf and admitted to the kidnapping of Colleen, but again insisted that all of the acts between him and Colleen were consensual. He claimed that Colleen had fallen in love with him and that she chose to leave. Now, obviously, Janice and Colleen were the key star witnesses for the prosecution, and both had the same recount of what had happened during the captivity, other than one instance where Janice claimed that she had tried to help Colleen escape, and Colleen refused 
Janice said that she did try to help her, but Colleen told her that God doesn't want me to go. Now, that's what Janice says. Colleen said that that never happened. So that was the one discrepancy in their story. Now, interestingly enough, Marliz was actually never brought up during this trial. The prosecution really wanted the jury to know about Marliz because obviously it strengthens this idea of what Cameron is capable of. However, ultimately it was decided that there was not enough evidence to prove that Cameron was the one linked to Marliz. So Marliz was actually forbidden to be talked about during this trial. Now, ultimately, Cameron was convicted on 10 counts, including kidnapping, rape, sodomy, and other sexual charges. And because of that, he was sentenced to 104 years in prison. So that was the end of the Colleen Stand case. And that is where she was able to get some sort of justice. But you have to imagine after seven years of captivity, of torture, Cameron being convicted is the least amount of justice that she could ever get. Now, even though Colleen got some sort of justice, this still left a lot of unanswered questions for Marliz and her family. And I'm about to tell you something that I want you to take as you will. We typically stay away from things of the paranormal nature on this podcast. And there really isn't a strong reason for that. I would say the main reason is just because it's oftentimes hard to believe when someone is telling the truth about those things. It just brings up a lot more questions than it does answers. It's just a whole different ballgame to get into. But I do think it is important to talk about in this case with Marliz. This is where a woman named Jodie Foster comes into the equation. And I will say, when I was learning about Colleen, I ultimately was able to learn about Marliz too. And through learning about both of them, I was able to watch a episode of Unsolved Mysteries where Jodi recounts all of her experiences. So after you finish watching, if you do want to go watch her talk about it, you definitely can. Because that was the first time that I had heard about that in this case. But I do want to mention it. So So there was a woman named Jodie Foster who, when she was 33 years old, her and her three-year-old daughter, Hannah, moved into the Walnut Garden Apartments in Chico, California, and they moved in to apartment number 14. And this just so happened to be the same exact apartment that Marliz lived in when she went missing. Now, they moved in many years later. They moved in in the year 2000. And immediately when Jodi moved into the apartment with her daughter, she said that she felt an immense level of heaviness and darkness in this apartment. And shortly after moving in with Hannah, she said that she noticed strange things began happening throughout the apartment. For example, many things throughout the apartment began becoming misplaced. So she would set the salt and pepper shakers in the middle of the table before going to bed. She would wake up and they're on the very edge of the table. Or another example is that her daughter Hannah, her shoes were always by the front door. And that was so whenever they were coming and going, Hannah could easily put her shoes on and take her shoes off and leave them on the shoe rack that was by the front door. And Pretty soon after the two of them moved in, Hannah and Jody noticed that whenever they went to go get the shoes, the shoes were never there. 
Instead of being on the shoe rack where they were supposed to be, the shoes were placed neatly in the middle of Jody's bed. Now, in the first couple times that this happened, Jody said that she looked to her daughter, thought she was playing a trick on her mom, thought that this was just some funny practical joke. However, Hannah was insistent on the fact that she was never the one touching the shoes. Another instance occurred when Jody was cooking one day and she overheard her daughter Hannah say hi to someone in her room. Jody went over to Hannah to try and see what was happening, who she was saying hi to, and Jody didn't see anyone in her daughter's room. At first, Jody thought that this could have been a bystander or someone walking by the apartment complex and Hannah just decided to wave at them, but Hannah was insistent on the fact that there was a girl in her room. She kept pointing to the corner of her room saying, look mom, she's right there. Hannah described this girl as wearing a white t-shirt and she even went as far as to name this girl saying her name was My Liz. And of course, now knowing what we know now, we can connect that to the name Marliz. But at that point, Jody had no idea who Marliz was, and she simply thought that Hannah was just imagining things. Now, things got more intense for Jody when one night after coming home from dinner with Hannah, she walked into the apartment and into Hannah's room. And in Hannah's room, she is a three year old girl. She has a bunch of stuffed animals. However, when they walked into Hannah's room, they noticed that all of the stuffed animals were put in a neat pile on top of each other. And on the very top of this pile was Hannah's Ernie doll. If you remember Ernie from Burton Ernie in Sesame Street, that was the doll that Hannah had. And it was a sing-along doll. So it played nursery rhymes. It did that sort of thing. And when they walked into the room, the Ernie doll was on the top of the pile with a telephone cord wrapped tightly around its neck. Now, immediately, Jody began panicking. She grabbed Hannah and ran out of the apartment. She ended up calling 911 to tell them that she was worried that someone was in their apartment. However, 911 never responded to the call, and according to Jody, they didn't take the call very seriously. So ultimately, Jody decided to bring her daughter back into the apartment, thinking maybe she was just over-exaggerating, and ultimately, the two of them went to bed. It wasn't until about 3.30 in the morning that Jody was woken up again, this time from the TV static channel. You guys know that black and white static channel that creates that noise that everyone hates. That was the noise that Jody claimed was playing on the TV. And it was at that same time that she got up to go look at the TV that she started hearing that Ernie doll sing the song that it plays. And it plays this song that says, I feel great over and over. I feel great. I feel great. And at that point, she also claims that the cabinets started shutting. They would open and they would shut. So she has the TV, the cabinets, the Ernie doll, all of this going on at once. And pretty understandably, she gets very paranoid. She turns the TV off and runs over to the Ernie doll and takes the batteries out of the doll and puts the doll in the closet. But even though the batteries were out of the Ernie doll, it kept 
singing. Jody claimed once she took the batteries out, the Ernie doll switched the song from I Feel Great to Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. Now at this point, Hannah was already awake and Jody had gone over next door to grab her neighbor who also just so happened to be the manager at the apartment complex. Now the neighbor grabbed her dog and went over to the apartment with Jody and immediately this dog begins barking. And this lasted all throughout the night. Ultimately, the neighbor and apartment manager ended up going back home because they didn't know what else to do but Jody never went to sleep and she claimed she was sitting at the pool not knowing what to do and that is when a man walked over to her who had lived in the complex for about 25 years. Now once this man saw Jody, he immediately told her that everyone who lives in apartment 14 never lives there too long. He went on to explain that years and years ago a young woman had gone missing from that apartment and she had never been found since. Now again, at this point, Jody had never heard of Marlis. She claimed that she had no idea that anyone who ever went missing lived in this apartment. But another thing that kept happening to Jody when she moved in was she started to have very weird dreams. And these dreams were repetitive. They were repetitive dreams about a girl that she did not know walking along the sidewalk when a bluish gray car pulls up next to her. She claims that in her dream, there is a couple in the car and the couple asks the girl if she needs a ride. And in the dream, Jody says she can see a man come up from behind the girl and place a cloth over her mouth before putting her in the car and driving off. She also went on to say that she had dreams about the girl being in a basement, the girl being chained up in a basement, but again, Jody claims that she had no idea about Marliz until this very point. And Jody and Hannah did not stay in that apartment very long after that. They moved out after about three months of being there. They moved out April 1st of 2000. But even when they moved out, Jody said that the dreams did not stop. And in her new set of dreams, she kept seeing repeating numbers. These numbers were 35.76 and also the number and letter A17. Now, after seeing these repetitive numbers in her dreams, Jody finally decided to call the Red Bluff Police Department. Jody told police that she didn't know if the information that she had was valuable, but she felt like she was compelled to tell police what she had been seeing. And weirdly enough, when Jody called police, police had informed her that they were in the process of re opening the investigation into Marliz's disappearance, which Jody was unaware of. She had no idea that they were going back to reopen the case. And according to the detective, he said when he got the call, he was almost spooked out a little bit. He was a little freaked out. He thought it was a weird coincidence. And so because of that, he was very open to hearing what Jody had to say. So the two of them had a meeting. She explained everything that I just told you. And she also told him about the numbers and the A17 that she was seeing repeatedly. 
Now, that was in 2008 because that is when they reopened the investigation. And what Jody didn't know at that point, and she learned within just the past few years, is that after that initial phone call, police had gone back and they put those numbers into their mapping system because Jody told police that the 35.76, what that kept showing up as was the distance between Cameron Hooker's house and Marliz's gravesite. So that is what she assumed those numbers to be. And when police went back into their mapping system and put those numbers in, they started from Cameron Hooker's house all the way to where authorities believe, and again, this is based off of speaking to Janice and their investigation because Janice did confirm that that state park was where they buried Marliz's body. So when police went back and put into their mapping system and did all of their numbers, they pieced together that the distance between Cameron Hooker's house and where they believe the general area is of where Marliz is buried is 35.77 miles. Now again, Marliz is still not found to this day, but it is crazy when you think about that. And when it comes to the A-17, police were also able to figure out that there is a A-17 interstate or road that Cameron would have had to take to get to that park where Janice said that Marliz was buried at. And police did drive through that entire state park with Janice to try and see if they could jog her memory, to try and see if she could remember where they buried Marliz. However, Janice claimed that she did not know where they buried her. So because of all of that, Marliz is still an unsolved case. Like I've mentioned and like we've talked about, the detectives did reopen the case in 2008. However, she has never been found. Now, wildly enough... Wildly enough, Cameron Hooker actually got granted parole and was sent to jail in Alameda, California while he awaited his trial. And the reason that he was granted possibility of parole is because of California's elderly parole program, which grants the elderly who are in prison, who reach a certain criteria, like they have to be 50 years old, they have to have served at least 20 years of their sentence, it grants them parole. So because of that new program and law that was enlisted, this gives Cameron the possibility of parole. And so as of March 2023, literally this year, his trial date is set for this October to determine whether or not he is a sexually violent predator. That's what they're trying to determine. And if he is determined to not be a sexually violent predator, he will then go to a mental health facility where he could be released at any given point. So the jury is really still out on the conclusion of this case. We don't know what this is going to hold for the future of Cameron and Marliz's case. However, that is where we stand today. And I am really interested to see what you guys have to say about it. But with that being said, you guys, that is all for me today. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Killer Instinct. If you're new here, hi, my name is Savannah and I am your host of Killer Instinct. Again, make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button. That way you never miss an episode. We post weekly on the podcast every Wednesday as well as YouTube and you're not going to want to miss it. I'll be back in a couple days with a brand new one. And until then, stay safe. Bye guys.